0: Thanks, Peter. Good morning, everyone. So nice to see all of you guys here. Um, a lot of familiar faces. It's always a great privilege to meet in the house of the Lord. Um, but yeah, let's let's keep those people in mind that are sick and, and pray for them this week. It's it's quite bizarre to me the amount of people that are sick. Carmel was actually a little bit sick this week. She's better now. But yeah, let's really do bring our people before the Lord as it's much better for everybody to be here than you know just for us so we'd really like to see all of you at home here as well so today I'm going to start with a quote and as I read the quote I would like you guys to imagine in your head the type of person who might say a quote like this a man who was completely innocent offered himself as a sacrifice for the good of others including his enemies and became the ransom of the world it was a perfect act Now this is a quote about Jesus, speaking about Jesus as being completely innocent, giving himself as a ransom for the world. All of us sitting here would not disagree with that. I mean, that quote is true. And yet it's bizarre that this quote came from a well-known Hindu activist, Mahatma Gandhi. And this shows us the reality that there are so many people in this world with an opinion about who Jesus is and why Jesus came to this world. A big problem with many people is that their opinions are not informed by the word of God and many times their opinions are formed by the people around them or their own perception of who Jesus is and we see that this problem is not just a problem that faced the early church the disciples but it's a problem that still faces us to this day and that is exactly what we will be examining in the sermon today that's why I've titled the sermon seeing Jesus rightly seeing Jesus rightly For the past few weeks, Peter and I have gone through the Gospel of Mark and we've looked at the identity of Jesus, the works of Jesus. And for us who are readers of the text, we're in a very privileged position because from the first chapter we are told that this is the Gospel about the good news of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. With the two feeding miracles that Peter and I have addressed so far, we've seen that Jesus is this promised Good Shepherd that Isaiah and Jeremiah prophesied about. And that he will bring the exodus or the the rescue of God's people forward. The disciples, as we've seen so far, have not been brilliant in their understanding of who Jesus is and what he came to do. Last week, Peter preached and we kind of hit a low point in the disciples' understanding of Jesus. Where he asked him three questions. Do you not understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see Having ears, do you not hear? Up to this point in Mark 8, as we've preached last week, the disciples being with Jesus were completely unable to see who he is. So today we'll start with a new act in the Gospel of Mark. Peter and I have mentioned that the Gospel of Mark is broken up into three acts. The first act was focused on Jesus in Galilee and the miracles that he did and revealing himself as the, the Messiah to the masses. The third act, which we'll be getting to in in the following weeks, we see Jesus going to Jerusalem, dying, being afflicted, as being rejected by the the council and the chief um, priests and the scribes. But today we'll pause for the next few weeks and look at the second act in the Gospel of Mark, which functions as a bridge between Jesus in Galilee and Jesus in Jerusalem. And it's quite interesting how the second act plays out. And you'll see some of this highlighted today. So I'm just going to give you quick four highlights or four characteristics of the second act, which you need to keep in mind today as we read and in the coming weeks. The first thing which is really interesting is that on both ends of the second act, we see the healing of blind people. And these are actually the only miracles that we see Jesus perform. And Peter has noted that Mark uses this technique called a mark and sandwich, where there is a story or an event at the front and at the back, and in the middle is sort of the meat or that which Mark seeks to highlight to us. And in the middle, between these two blind men receiving sight, is the disciples and their inability to see. Throughout the second act, we will see three times where Jesus predicts his death as the Messiah who is to come, And the disciples are unable to understand or see how this is possible, that this is Jesus' ministry. We also see a significant change in the way Jesus does His ministerial work. From healing the masses, providing healings, driving out demons, we will see only two healings. The main focus of Jesus' ministry for this part as He's leading up to Jerusalem will be the teaching of the disciples teaching them what it means to follow Him, teaching what it means that He will die and be raised again. Up to this point, Jesus hasn't really spoken about His death, explicitly at least, and today we will see Jesus for the first time setting the cross before His disciples, explaining to them what it means for Him to die and what it means for the Messiah to be raised again. This sort of bridge between Galilee and Jerusalem will ultimately be a way in which Jesus educates his disciples on the reason he came to this world that it's not about all the healings and the miracles and the exorcisms but that he will die for our sins and be raised again and with that in mind i would like us to see jesus explanation of why he came to the world as we try to make sense of who jesus is our first point for the sermon will be focusing on the miracle of this blind man receiving sight And the first point is therefore titled, Seeing Jesus Rightly Requires a Miracle. Seeing Jesus Rightly Requires a Miracle. Peter read to us this passage in Mark. And up to this point, we haven't seen any blind people receiving sight. We've seen the deaf receiving hearing. We've seen the mute speaking. We've seen the dead raised. But this is the first blind person in the gospel of Mark to receive sight. And this might seem weird to us because this is something that we would have expected to have happened so far. Yet, as we see in this, the blind cannot be excluded from the ministry of Jesus. We see the friends of Jesus, the the friends of this blind man coming to Jesus, begging him to heal this man. Similarly to the Syrophoenician woman, they realize that Jesus is the only hope that their blind friend might have to receive sight. Again, in verse 23, we see two important aspects of this healing. Firstly, Jesus takes this man out of the village to heal him. Why? Well, Jesus didn't want to make a massive spectacle of this healing as to distract the masses of his actual mission. He didn't want the people to be focused so much on this blind man receiving sight that they completely miss why he came to this world. And secondly, we see Jesus again spitting on this man's eyes and touching him. Like we said in the previous healing, this is very bizarre. This is not a way that we would heal people today. Yet in this we see Jesus in his closeness touching this man and healing him, showing to this blind man a way that he could understand, but also showing his compassion and closeness to this man's suffering. Now follow with me in verse 24. We see something bizarre for the first time in the biblical text, and probably the only time, we see Jesus not healing this man the first time. This is really strange, right? So the man tells Jesus he sees people walking like trees. Trees walking, that's that's pretty strange. Well, this means that he knew they were people, yet he could only see the sort of outline of them. Similarly, in the dark, you might see trees You might see branches and they look like arms. So you you can understand why this man would reason, well, those look like trees, but they're moving. And so they have to be people because, I mean, trees don't walk. So he sees the form or the shape of the trees, yet he misses the substance of what they are. Jesus then puts his hand on the man's eyes and heals him completely. Mark uses three phrases To show that this man was completely healed. Firstly, he opened his eyes. He opened his eyes. His sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. Three times in one sentence, Mark seeks to make it clear to his readers that this man's sight was not merely restored a little bit, but that this man could completely see now. Now this man's healing signifies also something which we see with the disciples. How they'll move from non-understanding, as we've seen in the last few weeks, to a kind of understanding, as we'll see today. And then finally, after the resurrection of Jesus, when they see Jesus as the resurrected Messiah to a complete understanding. So when we read the story, we shouldn't see Jesus as losing his power or that Jesus somehow, because he was almost on his way to Jerusalem, was somehow losing the the magic that he was healing people because he had to die on the cross. No, Jesus is completely God. He's all-powerful. If he wanted to heal this man the first time, he would have done so. So when we read a story like this, we should pause and think why Mark would explain the story in this manner and why Jesus would heal in this manner. Because it's the only time in the gospel text that we find a story where Jesus had to heal somebody twice because they weren't fully healed the first time. The story firstly reminds us that blind people cannot give themselves sight. Right? Blind people are blind, they cannot heal themselves, and we typically can't heal blind people either. So this man needed a miracle. Seeing Jesus, therefore, requires. A miracle It's as true for this blind in, in the physical as it is true for us. Salvation to see Jesus spiritually requires a miracle. Not just new eyes, but the dead need to be raised. Our spirits are dead. We are dead as humans. Salvation, therefore, seeing Jesus requires a miracle. This is also a beautiful picture of godly friendship that we see here. These people brought their friend to Jesus and begged him to heal him. Do you have friends like this who will bring you to Christ in prayer, begging Jesus to heal you or open your eyes when you're blind? Are we friends like this to our friends who are blind, who are unable to see Christ, who are spiritually blind? Do we bring them before the Lord And beg him to open their eyes. Because seeing Jesus requires a miracle. We need to bring our friends to Christ in prayer. Pleading with the Lord to open their eyes. As we see this blind man's friends doing before Christ for his sake. This miracle of seeing Jesus rightly is seen in two ways. As we'll see from verses 27 to 33. On the one hand, this miracle requires new eyes we need new eyes this is the second point of the sermon seeing jesus rightly requires new eyes this miracle is also seen in how we need a new mind and that's the third point of the sermon seeing jesus rightly requires a new mind so this miracle of salvation or this miracle of seeing jesus in this text requires two important aspects new eyes and a new mind So follow me in verse 27. After the healing of this blind man, Jesus stands in front of his disciples and he asks them a piercing question. Who do the people say that I am? Why would Jesus care what the people say? Why Why would Jesus ask his disciples, who do the people say that I am? Well, the disciples were among the people. They were with the people. They would have mingled with the crowds as Jesus preaches the kingdom as Jesus brings healing. So the disciples would have seen and heard everything that the crowds were saying. If the crowds were saying, this is a madman, this is an imposter, the disciples would have heard this. Imagine a guy coming to Stavanger, performing miracles, preaching that he is the one who is initiating the kingdom of God into this world. We would all start talking who, who is that man? Did you, did you guys see that man in town speaking loudly with a microphone, performing miracles and healings? We would all speculate to who this might be. So who did the crowd speculate Jesus to be? Well, firstly, John the Baptist. I mean, That's not a bad guess. John preached about the kingdom. He initiated the kingdom for Christ. And Jesus continued where John left off. Herod Antipas draw a direct correlation between Jesus and John, thinking that Jesus was John the Baptist whom he killed. That's not a bad guess. Elijah, that's, that's not another solid guess. No Old Testament personality held such fascination among the Jews as Elijah. And it wasn't because of his works, you know, Moses with the parting of the sea, or Abraham and um, David, you know, you had these big kings and prophets. Yet Elijah was believed to be the overseer of mortal man by the Jews. They also believed that he was the one who gives comfort to those in need. A big reason why commentators believed Elijah had such great weight and emphasis as a prophet is because of the fact that he was taken to heaven bodily. He never died. And so the Jews were always fascinated by Elijah and many predicted that because Elijah was taken up into heaven and never died, there is a possibility that perhaps Elijah could come back. You were seen as the one who had to prepare the day of the Lord in Malachi 3. So you can't fault these people for thinking that Jesus was Elijah. Elijah also performed miracles such as raising the widow's son from the dead and multiplying oil and flour to make a cake as Jesus multiplied the food. So Jesus' miracles and Elijah's miracles looked similar. Surely we cannot fault the people for thinking that Jesus was Elijah. or What about one of the great prophets like Jeremiah? Not just a prophet, but one of the greats. The Jews believed prophecy to be extinct or to have stopped with the time of Malachi. They believed Malachi to be the final prophet and that no prophecy would continue. So the reincarnation of one of the old prophets like Jeremiah would be the most natural way for explaining this prophetic figure. With the name of Jesus. But Jesus indicates to his disciples in verse 29. That there is a better answer. He's he's not John the Baptist. He's, He's not Elijah. He's not a reincarnation of the prophets. Who do you say that I am? Put yourself in the disciples shoes for a moment. Right. You just left your nets. Casting your nets. And you followed this guy. Who said follow me. For the last few years. There was this instinctive recognition of his authority when he called you to follow him and after starting to follow him he started performing miracles and telling you strange things about the kingdom of god exercising demons raising the dead we who read mark's gospel now are in a privileged position of seeing that jesus is the christ the son of god in the first chapter and so We see all of the healings, all of the miracles through the light of the fact that we know he is the Christ. Yet, the disciples surely must have thought, Who is this guy? We've left everything to follow him. Who is he? Perhaps the people are right. Perhaps he is Elijah. Perhaps he is John the Baptist. Perhaps he is one of the prophets. Yet, Peter who many see as a spokesman for the group, declares Jesus to be the Christ. Now why is this significant? Why the Christ? Well, we see for the first time the disciples or any man recognize Jesus as the Christ. Previously, only the demons have noticed that Jesus is the Christ, is the Messiah. But up to this point, no human has recognized Jesus to be the Christ. And we see in the Gospel of Matthew, the same story, Jesus speaking to Peter saying, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. God had to reveal Jesus to Peter. Otherwise they would have remained blind. For the last eight chapters we've seen the disciples blind, without understanding, unable to see or perceive. God needed to give them new eyes in order to see Jesus. It's also important for us to notice and note what the meaning of Christ is. Christ isn't just Jesus' surname. We speak about Jesus Christ. It's not as if His name is Jesus and His surname is Christ. The Greek word Christ comes from the Hebrew word which means to anoint. And many times this was done with oil or with the Holy Spirit. But in the Old Testament, we see only prophets, priests, and kings being anointed with oil and with the Holy Spirit. In Judaism, this kingly class, the kings, were the rulers. They were the ones who ruled God's people with God's authority. And there was a great expectation among the Jews that a king similar to David would be raised up. In Jeremiah 23, we read that the days are coming when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely to do what is just and right in the land. So the Jewish expectation of a Christ, of a Messiah, was a king greater than David who would rule the Jews. They didn't expect a suffering servant like we read in Isaiah 53. They didn't expect the suffering Messiah. They expected a Messiah in the line of David who would set them free from the oppression of the Greeks. So when Peter declares Jesus to be the Christ, he is declaring something of Old Testament significance. But in a real way, Jesus is standing in front of us all today, asking, who do you say that I am? This two-stage question to the disciples shows us that Jesus isn't just content with hearing who others say that he is. He wants to know from his followers Who they say he is. We like the disciples need to separate ourselves from what the crowds and the majority say about Jesus. And profess our faith of who Jesus is. It's interesting to note that seeing Jesus as Elijah or as John the Baptist or a great prophet These things seem great. It's not as if they were saying to Jesus, they're saying you're a madman. They're saying that you're an imposter because the people surely would have said that. I mean, all of the Jewish leaders were saying that Jesus is an imposter. He's not the Christ. He's a blasphemer. Yet the disciples didn't say that to him. Yet Christ is not content with hearing the words of the crowds. He wants to know who he is as he has revealed himself. How often do we do this today where we focus on a small aspect of Jesus' ministry and focus so much on that that we miss out on the entirety of why He came? Think about this. Many people say that Jesus is is love, Jesus wants His followers to prosper, and that's sort of the whole gospel, right? Yes, He is love, and yes. He wants His people to prosper. But when we deny His judgment and when we deny the fact that we will suffer, we focus on a small aspect of who He is and deny who He has revealed Himself to be. Perhaps you think Jesus is only a good teacher who came to teach us how to live instead of how to worship God rightly. If we only focus on a small aspect of Jesus' ministry, We miss out on who he is. Or maybe something which hits closer to home here in Norway. When we look at how many people or how few people, should I say, attend church. Treat Jesus as an optional extra. An additional thing they add on to Christmas or Easter. Instead of an essential part of their lives. We see them worshipping Jesus as merely Optional, focusing on a small aspect of who Jesus is instead of viewing him as essential as he has revealed himself throughout the texts. Who we say Jesus is and our confession of faith, our confession of Christ is important since it shows the world around us and it shows us who we worship. This is why it's so important to pray and read the word of God that we might see Christ and commune with him. That our affections may be drawn towards him. That's why Peter read the golden calf story. Many of you might be wondering, why was that part of the Old Testament reading? We're speaking about the seeing of Christ. When we read the the golden calf story in the Old Testament, something which is really interesting is that they viewed the golden calf as the one who brought them out of Egypt. And then Aaron tells them, we will make sacrifices to the Lord. Referring to the golden calf, using the name of Yahweh to refer to the golden calf. Many times we read that story and we're like, yeah, clearly that was an idol. The people should have known better. But up to that point, it was only Moses who has seen the burning bush. It was only Moses who has heard the voice of God. These people didn't set out to build a golden calf. They didn't set out to do an idolatrous worship. In their understanding, the golden calf was Yahweh. Yet, their understanding of who God is was false. Let our confession of who Jesus is not be false. Let us confess Christ as He has revealed Himself in the Scriptures. If we worship a God of our own understanding, we will fall into the same trap as the Israelites did with the golden calf. And how fortunate are we that God has revealed Christ to us to us. It would be impossible for us to see Jesus if it wasn't for God opening our eyes and revealing him to us. Seeing Jesus requires new eyes. And that in itself is a miracle. We are like the blind man in need of sight and God has revealed Christ in his word to us. And if you're a Christian here today God has opened your eyes to see Christ. But in Peter's recognition of Christ as the Messiah, we see that we require a new mind as well. We need both a set of new eyes as well as a new mind. Follow me in verse 31. After Peter declares Jesus to be the Christ, Jesus proceeds to tell them and teach them what it means that he is the Messiah. It's interesting here that Mark says Jesus began to teach them as if Jesus hasn't taught them anything up to this point. Yet, similar to a school teacher that teaches you math, would we think 2 plus 2 equals 4 is maths? Yes, sure that's maths, but that's, that's not the, the meat and bones of what maths is. That's just laying the foundation in order that we might understand and in a similar way, we should view the previous six or eight chapters as Jesus laying the foundation for the disciples in order to understand. Similar to how a parent has to teach their child to read before they can read Shakespeare. Jesus had to teach his disciples, that is the Christ, in order for him to reveal to them what it meant for him to be the Christ. And this new, les- this new lesson wasn't that there won't be any danger ahead. This new les- lesson was that Jesus was going to have to walk straight into danger, that he would have to die. Jesus essentially starts to teach the disciples the true meaning of Peter's confession that he isn't this triumphant Messiah who will come to them and rid them from the shackles of the Roman Empire. He is, like Isaiah 53 tells us, the suffering servant who must be suffer and be rejected and even killed. Ironically, the suffering and death will not come at the hands of godless, wicked thieves, as we might expect. But it will come at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. According to the Jews, this was humanity at its best wasn't humanity at its worst that was going to kill Christ. It was humanity at its absolute best, according to the Jews. The death of Jesus won't be a result of a momentary lapse of judgment, you know, mob rule, mob mentality, running and just starting to beat him to death. No, there will be careful deliberations. Respected religious leaders will come together and deliberate using God's law, actually thinking that they're doing God a favor. All of this was too much for Peter to handle. So Peter, standing in front of Jesus, saying, Well, there has to be a mistake here. We know in the Gospel of of Matthew that Jesus told him that, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall not happen. Similar to the vision of this blind man, we see that Peter's vision is still blurry. He's seeing trees walking. He's not seeing humans. His vision of who the Christ is, is blurry. Like the man seeing the form, but not the substance, Peter confesses the form of the Christ, yet misses what the substance of it means. Put yourself in Peter's shoes. He's given three years of his life to follow this guy who's just going to die. What a failure. I mean, messiahs don't die. Messiahs rule. He has given everything in his life to follow Jesus and now he's going to walk straight into the hands of those who want to kill him and and he's just going to give up? Peter's fleshly desire certainly wouldn't have rested with that. I mean, here is him with his friends ready to rule with the Messiah, ready to rule with Christ, being seated on high in the Roman Empire after they overthrow. it and, and now he tells them that No, he's actually going to die. Peter doesn't hear, perhaps not even remember, that this death will be not death. It will lead to resurrection. He misses that completely in his rebuke of Christ. But we see Jesus responding quite strangely in verse 33 as a counter-rebuke to Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And this is a very strong rebuke of Peter. The Greek, in the Greek, Jesus literally uses the same words as he used in the wilderness, rebuking Satan. Is Jesus calling Peter the devil for misunderstanding what he is meaning? Not quite. I don't think Jesus is calling Peter Satan. But I do think that Jesus recognizes that the thoughts which Peter has are from Satan. Since any thought that we might have that puts itself against Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, any thought we might have that puts itself against the crucified Christ and against the mission of God is from Satan. Ultimately, we see human terms, human wisdom, human understanding coming into conflict with the things of God. And this is something we see throughout Scripture. Paul continually reminds us that we should renew our minds in order that our thoughts may be the thoughts of God, that Satan might not take our thoughts captive. Whether these are thoughts of doubt, thoughts of lust, thoughts of sinning, we are constantly in need of renewing our minds in order that our minds may not be the minds of men controlled by Satan, but rather the mind of God and his followers. It's quite interesting I've I've recently been reading a book by John Owen called Spiritual Mindedness and I read this before I knew I was going to preach this passage but in this he speaks about the devil who constantly seek to draw the minds and hearts of believers away from God and earthly and world, uh, away from God and the things of heaven and place them on worldly or earthly things this according to Owen causes great difficulty in the lives of believers, since it's difficult to respond to God with faith and obedience when your mind is drawn to the things of this world. The only way that we can respond to God and obey His word by faith is to continually renew our minds and place them on the things of God. Our minds need to be continually filled with spiritual things and not on the things of this world. If you're sitting here today and your mind is drawn to worldly things constantly, instead of delighting yourself in God and the things of Christ, your delight is on the things of this world and on the things of this flesh. I want to read Romans 8, 6 as a warning as well as an encouragement to you. As Paul reminds the Romans, To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. If you continue down this road of being influenced by the devil in your thought life, your thoughts not being renewed daily, then the result is death. Whether it is in this life or eternally. But there is hope. If you turn your mind to Christ, He promises in His word that it will lead to life and peace. In order to see Jesus rightly, and not merely the form of who He is, but also in substance, We need to also have a new mind. Since a darkened mind leads to open eyes being darkened. I'll read that again. A darkened mind will darken open eyes. Even if Jesus has opened your eyes and healed your spiritual blindness, you still need to constantly press on reading the word, reading prayer, praying yourself, in order that your mind may be renewed, that your eyes may not be blurry and darkened because of your mind in darkness. Seeing Jesus requires a miracle of a new mind. So if we take a step back now and look at the story again of this blind man as well as Peter, the parallel between these two is much easier to see, and we can see why Jesus healed the blind man in this two stage healing firstly at this first touch of healing this blind man was able to see the form but not the substance he was able to see the form of trees yet could not see that the substance of what was moving was men similarly when Jesus touched Peter spiritually when Peter could see he could see the form of the Messiah he could see that Jesus was the Christ yet he missed the substance of what it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah He did not come to overthrow the Greeks, but he came to preach the gospel as one who would suffer, die, and be resurrected. The disciples were no longer blind, but their vision will remain imperfect or blurry until they see Jesus being resurrected from the dead. And then they will be like the man saying, I see everything clearly. In a very real sense, though, the story of the blind men and the disciples point to us all as well. Some of us might be sitting here today completely blind, like the disciples have been in previous chapters, without understanding, not able to perceive, hearing the gospel week by week, yet not able to see Christ. Peter, Matt, myself, we aim to present Christ to you week by week. And if you're unable to see Christ. If you're unable to see the good news of the gospel. Then I pray that God might open your blind eyes to see Christ. Since that's the only way that you might perceive and understand. Others here might sit here. Be Christian. You might be a Christian. Your, Your eyes might be opened. But perhaps your mind is not on the things of God. Your mind is on the things of man. I would encourage you. To pray earnestly, read the word of God earnestly, that your mind may be renewed. That by the washing of the word and by prayer, your affections may be drawn to Christ. Only by the word and by prayer that our minds and our hearts can be shaped to follow Jesus. This doesn't happen naturally. So as we meditate on the word of God, God's thoughts will become our thoughts. And this also provides us with an antidote to the temptations of Satan. We see in the wilderness, Jesus using scripture to withstand the temptations of Satan. And we should do similarly. That when Satan tempts us in our thought life, we can combat that with the word of God. You can only know the word of God if you read it. And then finally, all of us as Christians are in an unfortunate position where we do see Jesus. Yet our sight is limited. The hope of the gospel is this, that Jesus died as the suffering servant for our sins and his resurrection will mean that we will be resurrected as well. The suffering Messiah will return and he will be the triumphant Messiah over sin, over the devil and even over death. But Paul reminds us that for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Our sight on this side of eternity is like the blind man. It's dim. It's blurry. Yet we will have perfect sight one day when we see Jesus face to face. Yes, we should press on to have a greater understanding of who Jesus is. Yes, we should pray and we should read the Word of God that we might see Christ clearly day by day. But we should remember that this all... Whether it's the worship of God, whether it's experiencing the Lord's blessings or fellowship and communion with fellow believers. All of this is a mere foretaste of what we will enjoy when we see Christ face to face. I want to leave you with the words of Charles Spurgeon as he meditated on this paradox that we have as those who have sight yet has a hope of perfect sight which we will have one day. I would urge you, my friend, if you've got sight which enables you to see at all, fall on your knees and cry unto the great sight giver. O oh Master, go on with me. Take every foam off my eye, remove every cataract, and if it should be painful to have any prejudices cut away from my eyes, do it, Lord, so that I can see in the clear light of the Holy Spirit." that should be fit to enter into the gates of the holy city where my eyes will see thee face to face. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have given us sight, Lord. That we're reminded of this great miracle that salvation is. That we are not merely dead, people coming alive we are not those who are deaf and able to hear but lord we were blind and we see but lord let us not become discontent with the fact that we do not see you clearly on this side of eternity let us not become discouraged by our sin and the fact that we are unable to see you face to face lord but i pray that we might press on on this side of eternity to know you more That we might press on in this side of eternity to commune with you in prayer. Knowing that prayer and reading your word are a mere foretaste of the things we will enjoy with you in eternity. When our sight will be fully restored. Father I also pray for those in our assembly today who are blind. Who are unable to see. Lord I pray that you might give sight to them. As we are reminded in this passage you are the only one who gives sight to the blind. You are the only one who can perform the miracle that we need to see you, Lord. And so, Father, I pray that you may have mercy on those here today who are blind. And, Lord, I pray for all of us that our minds may not be taken captive by Satan, Lord. That we might not be like Peter, seeing you as the Christ, yet rebuking you for speaking the words of God, that our hearing of your word may lead to faith and obedience, Lord. So, Lord, I pray for all of us that our minds may be renewed to the image of Christ and our thoughts may be continually drawn upwards in order that we might worship you rightly, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.